Good morning, everyone. Past few weeks, we've been looking at Paul's letters to the Colossians, and we discovered that Paul's close friend and the actual founder of the church of Colossae, Epaphras, came and visited Paul when he was in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. Epaphras gave a good report about how God had really worked grace into the hearts and lives of the congregation in Colossae, but he also brought bad news that there were false teachers that had emerged within the church that was getting people's focus off of Jesus Christ. Basically, these false teachers were teaching that Christ was not enough to, for a person to enjoy the fullness of God. These false teachers, they taught that a person needed mystic insights from angelic visions. And these teaching, false teachers taught that a person had to follow religious rules and religious regulations in order to receive the full knowledge and the blessings of God. Now in this next section of Paul's letter, he will address these heresies straight on by presenting the work of Christ in the lives of believers. Before I read the text this morning, I want to remind you of what Apostle, the Apostle Paul taught about uh, Paul's writings. The Apostle Paul, uh, Peter basically says, you know, even Paul's writings are sometimes difficult to understand. And um, so this morning we're going to go into um, a pretty technical part of Scripture. Um, it's going to get into the weeds a little bit, so I hope you brought your work boots and uh, we can tranche through this. But I hope that uh, it's encouraging to you and you can walk away understanding the work of Christ in our lives so that we might truly glorify him. Amen. Amen. Our text this morning is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. To him you, have also, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. That finishes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. 
Here we see, first of all, in this passage that the apostle is calling for the Colossians to walk in Christ. Verse 6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And of course, as you've been taught, whenever you see a therefore, you have to know what it's there for. So the idea is that Paul is basically building off the case that he just made in the previous text where he really encouraged them to be complete in Christ and in the knowledge of Christ and in the fullness of Christ, keeping their focus on Christ. Paul says, therefore, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So Paul knows that upon their conversion, the Colossians had received the anointed Christ, the the historical Jesus, and the sovereign Lord. And he appeals to them to continue to walk in him. Now Paul has already told the Colossians back in chapter 1 that he's praying that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But here he's encouraging them to continue in their walk in Christ. It seems that the apostle doesn't want anything to hinder or to interfere with their spiritual growth in Christ. And so he presents their present and their continuous conduct to be conformed to the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world, Jesus is the Anointed One promised by the Father, and that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. He reminds them what it means to walk in Christ, whereas in verse 7 he says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, with overflowing with gratitude. Now, we often hear people tell us that we need to walk in Christ, but here the Apostle Paul is telling us four things that are necessary for us to walk in Christ. Paul is basically telling the Colossians how, he's teaching them how to walk as Christians. First, they must be firmly rooted. And then, after they're firmly rooted, they then continually built up, established, and overflowing. First, they have to be firmly rooted. Firmly rooted. On Wednesday nights at Youth Group, we've been looking at the parable of the sowers, which probably is a better title entitled the parable of the soils, where we see that Jesus teaches this parable that a sower went out to sow, and as he's sowing, he's sowing the word of God. And the seed of the Word of God falls on four different types of soil, representing our hearts, four different types of heart. Everyone has one of these types of heart in them right now. You first have the hard heart, the hard heart which the Word of God doesn't penetrate and is just cast aside. Then you have the rocky heart which the seed is deposited in a shallow soil but when temptation comes around, they're burnt out, they're, 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 they're withered away because of the temptation. Then you have the thorny heart where the, the, the weeds of this world grow up around the plant and choke it out. But then you also have the good heart where the seed of the word is firmly planted and the roots grow firmly into the soil and that plant yields much fruit. So we see everyone has one of these types of heart. So are you the one of a rocky heart where the word of God is just cast away? 
Are you the one with a rocky heart where you allow temptation to wither your relationship with Christ? Do you have a thorny heart where you allow the worries of this world to choke out your relationship with Jesus? Or do you have a good heart where by God's grace he has eliminated these things in you and really you have, has placed you in Christ. The seed of the word of God in Christ is firmly rooted in you and you begin your walk in the Lord. I pray it's the latter. I pray that God has put into us a new heart. That's what Paul is talking about here in Colossians. He knows that they have a good heart and that the word of God, that that the Lord Jesus Christ has been firmly established, firmly rooted in their hearts. Now this term firmly rooted, it's in the perfect tense, which means that it's a once and for all experience. That is being permanently rooted in Christ. So what Paul is talking about here is your your conversion experience. Where when you surrendered your life to Christ. I can say in in my pre-conversion experience I had mostly a, a rocky heart. Where the word of God was only just a little bit in me. And every time temptation I'd go down the, on the, to the altar call on Sunday night and then Monday morning I'd be sinning with my brothers all over again. When temptation came, I just withered. My faith withered away. But eventually God gave me a good heart and then firmly rooted the word of God in me, firmly established in me that Jesus Christ was Lord. That's what he's talking about here, this once and for all experience where you truly are in Christ. But then the next words in the, in the verse is are all present tense, which means it's a continual process. So the idea is that you've been firmly rooted. That's a once in a once in all experience. When you come to Christ, you're placed in Christ. But then you are continually built up in him, established in your faith, and overflowing with gratitude. You are you are built up in him, established in your faith, and overflowing with gratitude. This is what it means to walk in Christ. In our laundry room and at home, we have a sign that tells us how to do laundry. It says, wash, dry, fold, repeat. I don't know why Barb thought it so necessary for us to have a sign in our laundry room to uh, teach us us how to do laundry, but that's the basic instructions there. Wash, dry, fold, repeat. Now, basically, that's what the apostle is doing in telling the Colossians on how to walk in Christ. You put yourself in situations where you are built up in Christ, where you become more and more established in Christ, and and to the point where you're overflowing with gratitude. That's, you're firmly rooted, but then you're built up, established, overflowing, repeat. You are built up, established, overflowing, and repeat. Can we all say it together? Built up, established, overflowing, repeat. That's how you walk in Christ. So the point is, are you putting yourself yourself in situations where you are being built up in Christ? Are you putting yourself in situations where you're becoming more and more established in your faith? To the point... That you are now living with overflowing gratitude to God 
for what he has given to you in Christ. And that cycle goes again and again and again and again in your life. That's what it means to walk in Christ. Are you doing those things or are you just standing still? Not walking, just sitting, not really growing in Christ. Paul says, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Put yourself in situations where you can be built up in Christ, where you can be more firmly established in your faith, and to the point where you have an overflowing gratitude to God for what he's done for you in Christ. Walk in him. Now it seems that the apostle is concerned about these false teachers and how they might hinder or interfere with the spiritual growth of the Colossians. How these false teachers and what their teachings might prevent or hinder, interfere with the Colossians walking in Christ, doing what we just talked about. So he writes, See to it that no one take you captive, takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Basically what Paul is saying is just see to it that you are walking according to Christ. See to it that you're walking according to Christ. You're not walking according to these philosophies, these empty deceptions, these traditions of men, and these elementary principles of this world. You see here, now the apostle now makes his first direct attack against this Colossian, Colossian heresy. And he does so by calling it names. He calls their teachings a philosophy, empty deceptions, traditions of men, and elementary principles of the world. And let me just tell you, none of these phrases, none of these terms are meant to be flattering. He's basically talking about, you want to talk about the, the lowest run of teaching? It's the, what, the guys, what these guys are teaching. It's just philosophy, it's empty deception, it's the tradition of men, and it's elementary principles of this world. And Paul uses this such, this such direct language because he knows that these false teachings have the potential of taking us captive. You, you, if you remember, I mentioned in the first sermon of this series that the apostle, four years earlier, spoke to the elders in the nearby congregation of Ephesus, saying that savage wolves would come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your, your own self men will arise, speaking perverse things, and draw away disciples after them. And judging from these strong words that Paul uses here in verse 8, it seems that these savage wolves were now attacking the Christians in the little church of Colossae. So Paul puts them on alert. He alerts them to the danger of these false teachings by saying, see to it. Or be on guard. Be on guard to anything, any teaching which would distract you from losing your focus on Christ. Paul is warning the Colossians that these false teachers have the potential to take a person captive, which implies that these teachings could actually cause a person to become spiritually enslaved. 
held in captive in the prison of philosophy, in the dungeon of deception, in the torture cell of tradition, and in the penitentiary of of elementary principles. And when you combine what Paul is saying here in verse 8, and you go all the way through to verse 23 in the second chapter, you can see that these false teachers were advocating such things as circumcision, dietary restrictions, and strict observance of festivals and Sabbath as requirements to demonstrate that a person is a true believer. They're basically saying, if you're a true believer, then you must be circumcised, you must follow dietary restrictions, and you must observe strict festivals and Sabbaths. If not, you're not a Christian. This is what I call rule-keeping righteousness, where you believe that you can obtain the righteousness of God by keeping rules established by men in order to grow in Christ. That you start following these rules established by men in order to walk in Christ. You've been deceived. You think following these rules is walking in Christ. And Paul's saying, no, no, it's what I just told you back in verse 6. That's walking in Christ. Now, even though this Colossian heresy has a unique twist, which I... We'll discuss next week. I have to do something to keep you coming back. This form of teaching, this false teaching, was not new in the New Testament church. Every generation of Christian throughout church history, since the beginning of the church, has had certain heresies that they had to confront There hasn't been a generation of Christians that has not had to attack heresies within the Christian faith. And that this was the heresy of the first century church. We see that 10 years before the Apostle Paul ever wrote what we're reading now in Colossians, we are told in the book of Acts that some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And they were teaching this in the church. Now Acts 15 tells us that these teachers, they were from the sect of the Pharisees who had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they went on to teach that it was necessary to to circumcise Gentile believers and to direct them to observe the laws of Moses. You see, in, in the early church, those who taught the combination of God's grace through Christ and human effort were called Judaizers. And these Judaizers, they taught that in order for a Christian to be a truly right with God, then they had to conform to the laws of Moses. And circumcision was necessary for salvation. If you called yourself a believer, you had to be baptized according to these Judaizers. And this teaching of this mixture of the grace of Christ 
through works, through the keeping of the law, was something that was happening within the church of the, of the first century. And, and, and Paul, the, the church back in Acts chapter 15, they condemned the teaching. And then it raised this ugly head in the church of Galatia. And Paul attacks these, these Judaizers. He even calls them out, calling them Judaizers in the book of Galatians. And he says these things. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some of you who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He goes on to write, there is neither Jew nor Greek, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. He goes on to write, in Christ there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It means anything, but faith working through love means everything. Amen? Amen? So Paul is familiar with this false, fake gospel. And now he's ready to condemn it. At the church of Colossae. Remember the equation that I taught you a couple weeks ago. Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. It's not Jesus plus circumcision plus dietary restrictions plus strict observance of festivals and Sabbaths. It's Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. Amen? Amen? But these false teachers were pushing the Colossians to embrace new teachings and practices so that they could be more spiritually complete. And Paul will demonstrate that these philosophies, this empty deception, these traditions of men, these elementary principles of the world are a fake gospel. And that in Christ, we have all the fullness and the completeness required. Now, in the next four verses in our text this morning, the in him or in Christ language, it runs like a scarlet thread through, through the passage and passages and it serves to reinforce the point that Christians will re- receive every spiritual ple- blessings in Christ Through Christ, we have all the fullness of God because of our union with Jesus. And Paul warns them not to be taken captive by these deceptions, but rather to keep their focus on Christ. So he writes, notice verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Verse 10, And in him you have been made complete. And he is head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul really is getting them back on focus in him, in him, in him, because he wants them to walk in him. 
he, ex- he exalts Christ by reminding the Colossians that, it, that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's already told them that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He already told them that in Christ embodies the fullness of the Father. He's already told them that Christ holds all treasures and wisdom. But he wants these believers to know that there's no reason for them to turn anywhere else but to Christ alone. Because in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Don't get distracted. Stay focused on Christ. And then he goes on. In him you've been made complete. So there's no need to add anything else in an attempt to become more spiritually whole. You are spiritually whole because you're in Christ. He's the head over all rule and authority. He's already told us that Christ is the creator and sustainer of the universe and everything in it. Therefore, Christ rules. And Christ has authority over all things. So don't subject yourself to other things. Make yourself subject to Christ. Don't subject yourself to these dietary restrictions and these observances. What's going on in your head? Christ rules. Christ isn't subjected to these, subjected to these things, and neither should you. Why? Because you are in Christ. You following the logic here? And then he says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now this is where you're going to need your work boots. We see that Paul attacks this heresy that teaches that physical circumcision was necessary to demonstrate your faith in Christ. And he states that Circumcision made without hands is what God has done for everyone in Christ. Paul calls this divine act, this circumcision made without hands, he calls it the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul is referring to the act of God's grace where he placed us in Christ. And when he placed us in Christ, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would be no longer slaves to sin. Brothers and sisters, the moment that you were placed in Christ... God performed a spiritual circumcision on you, cutting away your sinful nature, your body of flesh. He removed it from you because now you are in Christ. Paul tells the Philippians, true circumcision is of the heart. And when God placed you in Christ, he cut away the callousness and the hardness from your heart. And he gave you a tender heart to the things of God. With a circumcision made without hands, God removed the body of flesh that calloused your heart. And he performed the circumcision of Christ. This is not a new gospel. It's not like this just appeared in the New Testament. God's been preaching this sermon from the beginning of time. Let me just give you one little snippet 
from what the Lord spoke through Moses in the Old Testament. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. This is the Old Testament. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, so that you may live. So when Paul writes here, in him you are also circumcised with a, with, with a circumcision made without hands for the removal of the body of flesh, circumcised for Christ. This is not a new gospel. This is an old gospel. This is what the gospel that God's been preaching since the beginning of time. That he's placed you in Christ and cut away the flesh that held you away from God. Praise be to his holy name. That's what God did in you, man. This ain't no fantasy world. This is reality. Paul continues to describe this moment of spiritual regeneration, telling us that we have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, listen. Every text has to be interpreted within its context. You all know that, right? And in the same way that Paul is, was not referring to physical circumcision in the previous verse, he is not referring to physical baptism in this verse. He's talking about when you were plunged into God's grace, placed into God's grace. He's talking about the moment of spiritual regeneration. You were buried with him and you were also raised up with him. Listen, be a student of scripture enough to know that there are four different types of baptisms in the, in, in the New Testament. There's the baptism of John, baptism of the Spirit, Christian water baptism, and the baptism of Christ. Two out of the four have nothing to do with water. Baptism in the Spirit and baptism into Christ. So it's an erroneous proposition to think that every time you see the word baptism, there's got to be water somewhere. Paul in this verse is not talking about water. He's talking about you've been placed into Christ. The fact you were placed into Christ at your conversion when God plunged you into his grace, that is what he's referring to here in verse 12. And he, makes, he shows two dimensions of that plunging into God's grace. He first states that you've been buried with him, and then he says you've also been raised with him. Are you still all with me here? So when Paul says that you've been buried with him, he's talking about that when you were plunged, when God plunged you into Christ, you were buried with Christ in his death. So what does the Bible tell us? That Christ did at his death. Well let me just tell you a few things. First of all at Christ's death he absorbed the wrath of God for you. At his death and his death and his burial he atoned for your sins. And in his, in, in his death and his burial he removed all your guilt and condemnation. And at, in his burial and his death you were, you were reconciled to have relationship with God. If Jesus never died, was never buried, those things would have never been yours. But now, since you are buried with Christ, now that you are in Christ, 
placed into Christ, all these things are yours. You, your, your, the wrath of God has been absorbed on your behalf. Your sins have been atoned to, for. Your guilt has been removed. And you have an opportunity to have a reconciled relationship with God the Father. Praise be to God. You've received all those benefits. Paul's like, listen, look at all the benefits you've received. Why are you, why are you settling for this counterfeit gospel? But not only have you been plunged into his death, Paul continues to say that you were, you were also raised up with him. So by God placing us into Christ, we not only received the benefits of Christ's death, Paul's saying you've also received the benefits of his resurrection. So, what did Christ's resurrection do for us? Well, again, let me just share just a few things. Christ's resurrection from the dead demonstrated his power over sin and death. Christ's resurrection from the dead demonstrated a freedom from the bondage of corruption. Christ's resurrection of the dead gives us a glorious hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul is saying, all these benefits are yours in Christ. Why would you settle for this counterfeit gospel? Look what you have in Christ. Therefore, don't walk according to the way these guys are telling you. Walk walk in the newness of life that's been given to you in Christ. Amen? Amen. Paul goes on, verse 13, but... You were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh. But he made you alive with him. The point of this entire passage is to show the work of Christ in us. And how the work of Christ in you brought you the completeness of God's grace. Don't go to these counterfeit sources. No amount of human effort or rule keeping will make you any more complete in God than you are now in Christ. God has worked faith in your heart and placed you in your Christ. So therefore remember, don't ever forget it, that there was a day when you and I were dead in our transgressions and we were uncircumcised in our flesh. But there was a day when he made you alive together with him. As Paul writes in Ephesians, you were dead, we were dead in our transgressions, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no man would boast. Paul wants the Colossians to know the full impact of what it means to be made alive together with Christ. And so he mentions three things. First of all, to be God has placed us in Christ and made us alive together in Christ and therefore have, we have all of our transgressions forgiven. All of our transgressions are forgiven. The Lord blots out all of our transgressions. Isaiah tells us And he remembers our sin no more. Paul already told the Colossians in the first chapter, in Christ we have redemption. What does that mean? 
in Christ you have forgiveness of sins. Remember there was a day when you were a sinner. Dead in your transgressions. But God made you alive in Christ. And therefore all your sins are forgiven. He goes on. The second thing what it means to be made alive together in Christ having counseled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. For those who have been made alive together in Christ, Paul wants them to understand that the certificate of debt that was held against us has been canceled. I like the way the NIV translates this verse. The charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, it was taken away, nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, we were serial violators of God's law in thought, word, and deed. That's who we were. And these violations, well, they stood against us and they condemned us. But when God placed us in Christ, when God made us alive together with Christ, he took them all away by nailing them to the cross. With every resounding blow of the hammer of the nails put in Jesus' hands and his feet, it was God declaring you are debt free. Debt free. Debt free. It was like a judge striking the gavel, declaring the balance is zero. Free and clear. No record of debt. No more condemnation. <laughs> That's what it means to be made alive together in Christ. Hallelujah. I tell you, I get excited off this stuff. I tell you. Paul's not done yet. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is Christ. Paul is saying that because we've been made alive together in Christ, there is no angel, no principality, no power that is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we are overwhelmingly conquerors over all these things because Christ made a public spectacle of them having triumphed over them by totally disarming them. I worked for years in Haiti where the society and even Christians are shackled by the deception that a spirit can control a Christian's life. That a spirit can come and do bad things and harm you. That the devil has as much power as God and can make havoc on you. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Why? Because he disarmed. Christ disarmed the rulers and authority. He triumphed over them through the cross. Amen? Therefore, there is no principality, no power, no angel, nothing that's going to interfere with my growth in Christ. 
Those who are al- have been made to, alive together in Christ can confidently say, as the Apostle John told us, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Nothing, nothing can happen to me because I'm a child of God in Christ. God is the one who controls and rules my life because he's placed me in Christ. Well, it's time to quit, preacher. Brothers and sisters, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in him. Don't allow anything to distract you from your growth in Christ. You have been made complete in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Your spiritual debt has been canceled. All opposition has been disarmed. Christ is at work in you. Therefore, walk in him. And always remember that Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your grace given to us through your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for the work of your Spirit that has placed us in Christ. And we apologize and ask for forgiveness for always trying to search out the new thing, rather being satisfied with Christ. Lord, we come to you today thanking you that you heard our cry. You pulled us from the pit of destruction. You set us on the rock that we might sing a new song to you. A song of grace, freedom, a song of salvation and redemption. You've done all things for us in Christ. And so we cling to him today. We thank you for the work of Christ in us. We pray that we could live our lives to his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.